0: .NET Rocks episode 698 with guests Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. Recorded live Friday, September 2nd, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard.
1: Hey, thank you very much. It's Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. Hey, Richard. Hey, buddy. We are uh, returning to space because there's just too many topics not to talk about.
0: Well, you know, I, we kept that first space show a little short because we were, you know, often wandering and, uh, most of the feedback was you left a whole bunch of good stuff out. Yeah. What's wrong with you guys? (laughs) (laughs) So, okay.
1: We, we'll fix that. We could, we could do that. And what's interesting is the day we published that show, number 688, which was August 11th, news hit that NASA announced, uh, they awarded contracts to seven commercial Spaceflight companies that were $10 million each, and then they added another one just recently. So if you go to tinyurl.com/slash NASA contracts, there's the digital trends article about that. And uh, uh, SpaceX was one of them, Up Aerospace, Armadillo, which is, I know you love them, Maston Space Sy- uh, Systems, Whitting Hill Aerospace, and X Corps. And then also, uh, in addition, Orbital just recently got a license from the FAA to fly to the ISS. Read about that at tinyurl.com slash Orbital And I'm sure you have a lot to say about this, Richard.
0: I, I do because, like you said, a bunch of big announcements came out. The most the compelling one for me was the one around SpaceX. Yeah. Uh, because SpaceX is the only commercial carrier now to have actually flown something into orbit and returned it. They flew their first Dragon mission successfully. Right. And that was only the second flight of the uh, Falcon 9.
1: Right. So everyone's excited that they can pull it off. And and by the way, before you continue, tinyurl.com slash SpaceX
0: flying to ISS. There's the article there. That's the one. From Huffington Post. And yeah, the, the big deal here is that uh, the original plan was... Uh, the mission that flew the dragon capsule was mission two. And so now there's going to be a mission three that was going to do a flyby of ISS. we are basically going to prove that they could put it in put their capsule in the right orbit, and then mission four was going to be the actually putting the capsule to ISS. And NASA has decided since mission two was so successful, they're just going to combine the two. And they're going to say, do an intercept and go in and, and actually put the capsule to ISS, and that is this year. Yeah. That's ridiculous. November
1: thirtieth actually yeah. which is less than 2 months from now
0: well and, and I'm sure there'll be delays so, you know the reality of of flight 2 is that it was delayed several months while they tried to get everything right but in the end it worked so you I mean you really can't argue with the the degree of success we're talking about here and now that shuttle's retired uh and then the other piece of news was that the Soyuz capsule carrying Progress 44 failed You know, I thought this was
1: really ironic that just a couple weeks after they announced that, this unmanned Russian Soyuz rocket crashes in Siberia, tinyurl.com slash Russian rocket crashes. Five minutes into the mission, a Stage 3 engine misfired and it crashed, August 24th, scattering about two tons of debris all over a barren swath of land in Siberia near the Mongolian border. But what's important about this, Richard, as you probably know, NASA contracts Russia, to carry American astronauts to and
0: from the ISS with these Soyuz rockets, right? And these Soyuz rockets, this design is old, right? They've been flying since the 60s. They're super reliable, so it's it's really quite shocking that one failed. And and you have uh, the Soyuz capsule, which carries the the passengers, and then you also have the Progress, which is the cargo. But it's the same rocket. So you know, following the normal guidelines, what everybody else does when a rocket fails like this, you stop flying it until you figure out why. Yeah, so needless to say, NASA's a little bit concerned about that, about the safety
1: in the future and all that. And now, uh, you know, the media is going a little bit nuts with uh, what's going to happen. If you go to tinyurl.com slash uh you can read the Time Magazine article about that, Time Science. Also, there's a couple more articles uh, on the impact of the Russian crash on the ISS, tinyurl.com slash impact. Uh, there's another article about the how the crash could delay private missions to the space station at tinyurl.com slash Russian Crash Delay. And another article uh, talking about how the ISS managers are evaluating SpaceX
0: via safety reviews ahead of debut arrival. Right. I mean, face it, if, it, if the Dragon capsule flies into ISS, well, that happened with Mir. Yeah mean you remember that? I do. That where well, they lost control of one of the progress boosters, and it actually slammed into Mir and cracked seals around one of the modules, and they ended up having to close off that module.
1: Well, Russia's had a, a string of failures lately. You can read uh, tinyurl.com slash more about Russian crashes. Um, this isn't the only one that they've had lately. There's been uh, uh, quite a few of them.
0: Yeah, they, they, and... You know, rockets are funny things, right? They, these guys have their troubles, and they'll go through a process to get it fixed. The challenge here is that there's six astronauts up on ISS right now, yeah, and they fly in, uh, each in a, a Soyuz capsule that carries three each, do the math. Uh, and those capsules have a 200-day on-station uh, rating. So they're allowed to stay up for 200 days, and then they have to come down. And those 200 days run out for both of them in the fall. Yeah. So it's only in the next two or three months that those capsules must come down. And they can't put new ones up as long as they're not sure that the Soyuz rocket's actually going to work. So they're going through trying to figure out what's wrong with the rocket. And even today, there was new announcements. They figured out that the gas generator on the stage three basically didn't fire. So the third stage didn't light, which is bad. That's bad. (laughs) That's very bad. Although it might be survivable, you know, that the crew could actually eject their capsule and uh, and use the recovery systems from it. Not that I think they want to test it that way. Yeah. Well, the benefit is that they're a long ways up, so it's a long fall, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but remember the whole thing, you know, we forget this, but the whole process of going into space happens very quickly. That was five minutes and it was a failure. Right. You know, the shuttle is in orbit in eight minutes. Right. Well, it takes it takes less time to get up than probably it does to come down. Is what yeah, I'm saying. Which thinking. seems counterintuitive, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. Because you know, generally gravity is pretty efficient. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you
1: know, uh, the Russians aren't deterred. However, there are still companies in Russia that, and engineers that are planning to put together a space hotel. If you go to URL Dot com slash. Uh, Russian Hotel in Space. You'll read this story in the Mail and Guardian online that um, the Russian engineers have announced the ultimate getaway-from-it-all holiday, revealing plans to put a hotel in orbit 320 kilometers above Earth by 2016. A four-room hotel in the heavens would house up to seven guests who would be able to cavort in zero gravity while watching as our planet turns. And, you know, there's some cool things that they mention in this article, one of which is No alcohol. Can you imagine going all the way up to space, stretching out in your whatever your little bed is, looking at the earth revolving once every ninety minutes, you know, and not be able to have some champagne or or a cocktail? (laughs) Come on.
0: Really? Do they say how long they expect the missions to be, like how long you get to stay up there?
1: Yeah, uh actually it says that space tourists will pay eight hundred and eighteen thousand dollars to travel on a Soyuz rocket. Naturally. To get to the hotel before stumping up a further $163,000 for a five-day stay. Wow.
0: So it's about a million bucks for five days in that space station. And you have to fly on a rocket that has a history of crashing. Well, you know. Just saying. Every rocket's had a crash. Just, you know. so Every airplane's had a crash. So, you know, that's this reality. Hey, you know, I'm just trying to stir up a little fear. You know, that's all. The more interesting about this is and it, it, one of those little secrets about the space program, everybody gets space sick. Right. The first three, until you've done it a few times, I mean, the first time you go into orbit, apparently the first three days, you're just ill. So, right. you know, you're going up for five days and three of them, you're going to be throwing up in a bag.
1: Yeah. Who is that guy uh, who went up in, um, who went up in, I don't know, 2006 or something like that? He was a, a rich uh, Russian guy and uh, he went, he got to fly to the space station. I don't know what happened to him.
0: There's been a few. Uh, the, the the one I can think of, the last one was Richard Garriott, who's the guy who uh, invented Ultima. That's it. And Ultima Online. But that, that that was only, that's only recent. The original guy was Dennis Tito, way back in 2001. Yeah. He was the first one. But they, and those were, what, 25 million a shot? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, fairly expensive. But he get back to the same thing, which is they spend their first couple, three days motion sick the whole time. Yeah until you sort of adapt to space. So on a five-day trip, you know, half of that you're going to be ill for. But gotta suddenly makes sense. Why would you give that guy alcohol? He's already yeah, sick.
1: That's true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, I wonder if you get
1: sick the whole time, if you can ask American Express to uh, reverse the charges. Nice. You know, uh, Let's talk about some of these other companies. Um, we did the last time, too, but uh, Armadillo is an interesting one. The, mm-hmm. the Doomquake guy.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, John Carmack. And I actually yeah. invited him to come on the show. I've had a few people ask, why would you get Carmack on the show? Cause I think it'd be a great conversation. Haven't heard yet, guys. We'll, we'll do what we can do, but, uh, it'd be nice to have him come and talk. And, and, he, uh, absolutely an interesting guy that, you know, made a fortune building video games and, uh, believes strongly in software and, uh, has been working on these different rockets. And they're getting closer and closer to, uh, to orbital flight as well. Although their focus has always been on more sophisticated landers. Yeah. Well, after this, um, as I said, after this, seven uh,
1: companies were awarded these contracts, uh, just yesterday, there was a, a post in Aviation Week that Orbital, Orbital Sciences Corporation, got an FAA license to launch a Taurus II rocket uh, from Virginia co- carrying a Cygnus cargo carrier on its first mission to the ISS. Interesting. So that's
0: scheduled for February. And yeah, the, and the Taurus is is a relatively lightweight rocket, you know, in the scheme of things. It's not a big, heavy. Like the thing that impresses me about what SpaceX has done is that that Falcon Nine is in the same class as a Delta Four Medium, which mm. is the the rocket that Lockheed Martin flies. Mm-hmm. Uh, or no, that Boeing flies. Lockheed Martin flies a Delta Five. So Delta Five uh, or the Atlas Five and the Delta Four comparable rockets, but. Now we have real numbers behind them, and the the Falcon Nine is literally half the price. Yeah, it's about 120 million to fly a Delta Four Medium, and it's about 50 million to fly a Falcon Nine. Hmm. And uh, you know, so we've cut the price in half as compared. You know, the joke here is that you you, you actually have to break these numbers down into dollar per or, or uh, the the dollars per kilogram to low Earth orbit. Yeah, and so. The most expensive is the space shuttle. runs about $10,000 a kilogram wow. to get it into orbit. Jeez. Uh, yeah. And then Falcon 9 comes in around 5000
1: Well, I think it's interesting that NASA is the one that is spending the money on these private companies. I mean, so that means NASA is still being funded, but they're realizing that they uh, you know, can't do things as cheaply as these other private companies are. They're not incentivized to do that.
0: And I think it's a different set of motivations, but they're really a research company. I mean, the, the thing that's important here is recognizing that orbital flight is a known science that can be done more efficiently. The yeah. the The military space complex that is the Boeings and the McDonnell Douglases and the Lockheed Martins and so forth, mm. their experience in missiles and their skill set was around weaponry. Yeah. You know, the, the original Delta rockets, you go back to the Delta II class and so forth, come from a set of ICBMs that were specifically made for what the military required. And what the military required was scramble ability. Was that right. from cold to launch in half an hour? Because, yeah. you know, the Russian missiles are on their way in. We got to get them up fast. Right. Well, that's just not a feature required in regular space flight. So they've spent a tremendous amount of money making this missile super light and super fast and quick to fuel and so forth, none of which matters if we're just going to do commercial flight. So what Elon Musk and and SpaceX have really done is built a rocket from scratch that's absolutely focused on what the commercial needs are. You
1: know what's interesting is that there are parallels in the software world as to what's going on in the space world. I tend to agree. You know, we for the longest time it was all about get that business software out there, give us access to our data. You know, paying developers all this money to you know these great big development tools and all this stuff. And uh, and now the focus is on doing more with less and and being more agile and um, and and architecture and things like that. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET Ajax, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com free freestuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash stuff now and take full advantage of the available free-of-charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks.
0: There's a new report coming up about an old problem that is approaching major crisis, and that is the problem of space debris. And that space debris doesn't necessarily mean big pieces of stuff. A little
1: tiny stone, uh, you know, about the size of a grain of sand can
0: wreak... Big havoc with astronauts in space. Well, they, yeah, they had hits on the shuttle with literally grain sized things that chipped, uh, uh, tiles and, cr- uh, m- put marks into windshields. It's, it's quite frightening, but the radar systems that track debris have tracked 17,000 objects of substantial size. You know, Jeez. A, a number of pounds. Like it's a lot of stuff. And there's this theory called the, the, uh, the Kessler syndrome. So this idea that there's now so much debris in orbit that it keeps colliding and making more debris, hmm. and then eventually it's it's going to cascade out of control. And one of the, the debate right now is, have we already hit that point, that we're already in continuous cascade? Because we've had a couple of really significant collisions. There's a good story about this that just came out today,
1: uh, September 2nd, tinyurl.com slash space debris problem. And this is in Information Week. Uh, space junk endangers NASA satellites and spacecraft, which is just exactly the kind of stuff that you're saying. Mm-hmm. These micrometeoroids, uh, they're called. Just tiny little things can totally wreak havoc.
0: Well, and and they don't even have to... The thing is, there's a lot of them aren't tiny. You know, spent rocket boosters are big. <laughs> and they're big enough that they actually... Pieces of it make it back to ground. Yeah. I mean, on a regular basis, people find pieces of... Uh typically the titanium pressure spheres. Yeah. So when you wanna when you want a rocket to run in space, you have to keep pushing the fuel down to the engine. Right. So they ha- they have these titanium spheres that are really tough that they pressurize with helium and that helium provides the pressure to keep the fuel flowing. Well those spheres survive reentry. And uh once in a while, they, you know, the most of most of the planet is pretty open space, so right. they, they don't hit anything. But every so often, people find these titanium spheres in places. Jeez, uh, yeah, one landed in Texas and hit a house. Uh, oh, they man. found them in Saudi Arabia. They found them in Australia. But so you, there's the, you know, there is crap falling from the sky. Not a lot, but there is crap falling from the sky. Every once in a while, you'll talk
1: to an environmentalist who, who will say, you know, maybe we should just shoot the garbage up into space because space is big. Well, the space that we could shoot, afford to shoot garbage into is pretty close to the earth. So that's probably not a good idea. Yeah. We want to keep the exosphere kind of clean. You know?
0: Well, and now the discussion is, can we start cleaning it up? Mm. So there's proposals to building spacecraft. Well, for starters, they've already changed the rules that uh, now booster rockets, like second stages, save some fuel. And after they finished pushing their spacecraft to where they're supposed to do, they turn around and shoot themselves back towards the Earth so that they reenter right away. Oh, man. Because typically normal second stages can be up in orbit for two or three years before they reenter. And, you know, in the meantime, they can hit things, and that often, those collisions throw things into higher orbits that take longer to fall. So they've already tried to to change, let's not make the problem worse, but now there's proposals going around to say, well, how do we actually round up this debris? So they're talking about building satellites with big nets that will Mm. actually collect things up and then pull them down and reenter them.
1: In other news, the spaceport in New Mexico is nearing completion as we record this. Um, in August, 90% of it had been, had been, uh, completed. So at, uh, tinyurl.com slash spaceport nearly complete, you can read the story in the Epic Times about that. But not everyone is as excited as we are about the spaceport. If you go to tinyurl.com slash spaceportchallenges, you can read an article in the Wall Street Journal that uh, talks about how things are expected to go slowly for space tourism. I mean, let's face it, Richard. We are recording this right as amazing things are happening in this, uh, you know, in in developing in this area. Yeah. I mean, this is the time. Things are happening right now. Yes. And... It's going to take some time before it catches on. There are going to be a few brave billionaires out there that are going to, you know, they've already got their tickets. They're ready to go. And after that, who knows? Who knows? But the, not everybody is really uh bullish on
0: the future of space tourism. Well, the, A, billionaires are a conservative bunch. That's mm-hmm. how they got to be billionaires. Mm-hmm. And B, there's just not that many of them. Yeah, and often they're busy being billionaires. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, so we're you're talking about a few hundred customers. We're going to have to keep driving the price down. Yeah, but that you know you segue into my next discussion item very nicely, my friend. So okay. I I thank you for that. I meant to do that. You meant to do that. That was your plan. <laughs> so if we look at these different rockets uh, and the technologies that are available, you know, the space shuttle run about ten thousand dollars a kilogram. Uh, delta four and and uh, Atlas Five run around seventy five to eight thousand a kilogram uh falcon nine's talking about five thousand a kilogram. What if we could get it down to a hundred a kilogram? Oh man, a hundred bucks and to do that, we have to get past the rocket that the rocket is just not the way right so now we talk about technologies like space elevators yeah the space elevator, as I heard about it, is a is a sort
1: of um carbon fiber rope that stretches all the way up into orbit from earth
0: the uh the very earliest propositions actually said build a freestanding tower, but you know when you do the math about the weight, you're just like, yeah, you're not gonna yeah. get there no but yeah. uh, uh, and every time, uh, Asimov has written about them, uh, Arthur C. Clarke wrote a great book about space elevators. Cause I've always thought he was actually an alien, you yeah. know, that he came from the future and cause he knew all this stuff, you know, he predicted geostationary satellites. He predicted ice on Europa. Like it's really kind of disturbing what the guy knew about. So yeah. I don't, I don't think he died. I think he went home. <laughs> um, but every time you talked about a space elevator, you talked about the material it was made from. And, uh, it was generally described as unobtainium.
1: Unobtainium. Yes. Nice. Uh, we have to
0: make that out of unobtainium.
1: <laughs> it's just not possible. Well, because it's
0: not, yeah, the, the, the whole idea here is you, this cable is really, really long, right? Yeah. We're talking about a 23, 24,000 mile cable, depending on how you do the counterweighting. Mm. So it's under a lot. A, it's heavy. B, right. it's tense, right? You want to counterweight. You want to try and keep it straight. So that tensile mass, you just need something that with the, the kind of strength. And I've got some numbers here, actually, because they have done a lot of research on this. Okay. So one of the ways they've computed the strength required for this is to basically say, well, how long can you make anything before it just breaks under its own weight? Right? Mm-hmm. So if you take a thing like titanium, one of the strongest metals going, you can draw that into a wire that will support its own weight up to about 30 kilometers. Wow. Right. And we need 36,000 kilometers. What about carbon fiber, which is something I mentioned earlier? Well, in, in regular carbon fiber, they get into the 400, 500 kilometer range, right? Mm. So now there's, now you get into nano engineered materials, stuff mm. like carbon nanotubes mm-hmm. and uh, graphene ribbons, which are, uh, these, uh, using, uh, carbon as well. They get into the 5,000, 6,000 kilometer range. Mm. There's a theory that the, the you can make these perfect carbon nanotubes, and we can't actually make them. And they get close to the strength, the minimum strength level required. The challenge here is that most calculations show you really want to have the thing twice as strong as the minimum. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's just smart design. Yep. And uh, that's pretty hard. Yeah.
1: And and it doesn't make sense to sort of take these lengths to their uh, to their nth, and then connect them with something strong,
0: some kind of uh, connector. Well, it, yeah, that one of the problems will be that it will have to be a continuous ribbon. Right. And they and tend now towards designs that are flat and broad. Uh, because they're aerodynamic, because we are going to go right through the atmosphere. Right. They get something for the climber to clamp onto. There's mm-hmm. ways to conduct power. There's lots of options here. But just suppose we crack that nut, because we're close. You know, mm-hmm. there's materials that seem to look like they can actually do this, that you would build a deep sea port right on the equator. And that would be the, the platform that you launch, lo- you go up from mm-hmm. and you have a ribbon going out into space past geostationary orbit, which is about 36,000 kilometers up. And then you have a counterweight on the other side, a captured asteroid a uh, or a space station of some kind. You need mass up there to keep the thing stable. Now, already an outrageously challenging thing to do, okay?
1: Well, it's interesting that um, NASA in just this August had a strong tether challenge that they held at the Space Elevator Conference in Redmond, Washington, August 12th. And uh, the whole idea was to challenge, which you can read about, by the way, at tinyurl.com slash NASA Tether Contest. And uh, basically, they got together and tried to have people uh, come up with materials, offering a prize purse of $2 million. And uh, competitions have been held uh, since 2006. But uh, as yet, no one has claimed the prize. Yeah, they are still uh,
0: trying. Yeah. So let's go to the next problem. Suppose you nail this; you actually can build a ribbon strong enough to support its own weight and have enough left over to take climbers aboard it. Now you got to build a climber. Now, this is a climber that has to go up a thirty-six thousand kilometer long rope. Mm. It's. Now, how much it weighs really matters. Yeah. How much it disturbs the balance of the cable really matters. Yeah. How do you get power to this? You know, it takes an awful lot of energy to resist gravity for the time. It's you know we right now we're used to going into orbit in eight minutes on rockets. Right. This is going to be days yeah. going up. It's going to take time to go up. So you need a if you're going to put people in that they've got to be. Pressurized, they've got to be fed, they've got to be taken care of for the days that it takes to go up and you've got to have enough power to do it. So one of the technologies that people are playing with is using lasers to beam energy to the climber. Right. So the power source then stays on the ground and shoots upward towards the climber up to a certain height. At some point, the laser is no longer efficient enough and you'll need something at the other end shooting downward through less atmosphere to continue moving the the climber up.
1: Hmm. Weird.
0: Mm <laughs> well, it's just thinking about the problem of I can't put a nuclear reactor on the climber. Right. Right. I need that kind of power, right? I need hundreds of kilowatts of power here to pull this thing up, the, the, the rope, and the weight of that much energy is too costly
1: to move. So microwaves make a lot of sense, and uh, lasers, I guess, uh, are just have the, have the longest reach. Isn't that the idea?
0: It's a, it's a frequency thing. I mean, they've talked yeah. about power satellites beaming microwaves from orbit back right. to land. So right. there are ways. It's just it's precision that you're going to need. These climbers aren't big.
1: Yeah, one uh, you know, 1 foot to the left and it could be uh fatal. <laughs> yeah,
0: know. it's a little and little tricky. You, you need to lock eat. onto that receptor whatever that's going to yeah. be. You, you want to aim carefully. Yeah. But <laughs> I'm just recognizing that space, the space elevator is a profound change. If we can actually go get into the $100 a kilo range for lifting things into orbit. And, you know, once you get to the, you're going to get up to geostationary orbit, which really means you're, you're, you're at the point where your orbital velocity is sufficient to hover over a point above the earth. Yeah. Which means you only need enough energy to move around from there. You saved a tremendous amount of energy. That's Robert Highland's old line. Mm. Once you're in low earth orbit, you're halfway to anywhere. Right. And we're not even talking low-Earth orbit. We're talking geostationary orbit, which is much higher. Mm -hmm. You know, low-Earth orbit is two or 300 miles up. Geostationary is 22,000 miles up. It's a lot further. But the counterweight is further out from that. And the counterweight gets really interesting because now you can use that to essentially fling things into space.
1: Well, that's what I was thinking, too. I mean, at a certain point, things start floating away from the Earth and counteracting gravity. So... You may be able to, you know, in a sense, bungee cord something up to space, you know, that kind of idea. Then you get your propulsion and you get, you know, if you've got a tether and you've got it tethered to the ground and a counterweight, you may be able to to fling something up.
0: And, you know, you say tether, the elevators, there's a whole other science called tethers, which is really bizarre. And we've experimented with a number of times and it's always gone wrong. Because hmm. it plays with orbital mechanics in a really interesting way. So you have a pivot point, you have an object, and, uh, you know, sometimes small spacecraft, and you unwind a long cable in both up and down. So away from the earth and towards the earth, and it cause it to start to rotate. So, you know, almost ferris wheel like, huh. that you have these two things on end spinning around. And these cables are long. Yeah. So you have gravitational differences, you have energy differences top to bottom, but there's a theory here that we could get that thing spinning enough, we could really fling things into orbit. But every time they did experiments with it on the space shuttle,
1: stuff went wrong. Well, yeah, you have things like wind, hurricanes, you know, little problems like that disturbing yeah. the, uh, the atmosphere.
0: Well, that's one of the way thinking back in the space elevator, dealing with atmospherics. They they specifically looked at a location in the western part of the Pacific because generally the weather there is pretty good all the time. It's mm. out of the hurricane belts and so forth. Because mm. yeah, this cable's going to have to survive some pretty serious stuff. Yeah. And then you think what would what would happen if an airplane flew into it? Right. That that would be
1: bad. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Grape City. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Boss comes and says, sales are up this week. I'm taking everybody out to lunch. Awesome. Next day, we're taking a loss. What happened? Well, you're a developer. You can create a report. So you go to your boss and say, okay, what should I report on? And they have no idea. Well, here's the good news. Active analysis from Grape City Power Tools empowers your boss. The money guys, so they can find the answers to their own questions. And the best part is, it's a control, completely self contained BI. Using a drag and drop interface, users can easily discover trends in the data, and more importantly, the deviations from those trends through its powerful graphical analysis capabilities. Development against the control is easy. All you have to do is provide the data. Active analysis will take care of the aggregation grouping, filtering, and sorting for the user. Of course, it offers programmatic control of all these operations, too. So if you want more company lunches, do your boss a favor. Use Active Analysis. For a free evaluation, please go to gcpowertools.com slash analysis, and don't forget to thank GrapeCity for being a great sponsor of .NET Rocks. And speaking of hurricanes, you know, Hurricane Katya, is uh, coming on the tail of Irene, which I'm still without power from Hurricane Irene after a week. And uh, Katya is now formed back into a hurricane. They took some pictures of it from the ISS, from the International Space Station. If you go to tinyurl.com slash Katya from ISS, that's K-A-T-I-A from ISS, you'll see an article with a picture there. If you want a larger version of that picture... Go to tinyurl.com slash bigcatcha. <laughs> 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 and, uh, man, hey, speaking of the ISS, I saw this great article in uh, in geek.com uh, that, you know, the cell phone, the Nexus, the Nexus S. Google's phone. Yeah. Well, that phone is powering these robots, these Star Wars floating droid robots called Spheres. Aboard the International Space Station, so they've had these spheres. Spheres stands for Synchronized Position Hold, Engage, Reorient Experimental Satellites. Just kind of rolls off the tongue, doesn't nice. it? Nice. But these are these floating droids that float around the space station, and they take measurements and all of that stuff. And you know, they they come right up to you, and then they stop, and they look at you, and they turn around and go away. It's kind of fun. But uh, now they've put these uh, uh, Nexus S. Phones on them, and with the Wi-Fi connection, they can be controlled. You can use the video. You can uh, they can communicate back to Earth. Stuff like this. So um, it's pretty interesting, and uh, and it's a good article to read. Awesome. Yeah. And also, Rich, remember on the last space show we talked about the um, Heavens Above website where you can find schedules for the International Space Station flying overhead. So you can go out and look at it across the sky. It's really a sight to behold. Well, I was talking about wouldn't it be cool if there was an RSS feed for that. Well, now there is. Nice. If you go to tinyurl.com slash flyoverrss, you go to this website. And uh, this is at spaceflight.nasa.gov. You pick your country. You pick your province. And then you pick your town. And then you click on the RSS feed, and you get a list of items that tell you when things are flying over you. And if you want to consume that with an application, there's one called Growl. There's one called Snarl. I don't know why, but uh, you can read about it at tinyurl.com slash growl app. So that you will be able to consume it. And, of course, anything that consumes an RSS feed is is fair game. One more thing before we go, Richard desktop earth love it this is something that you and i have on our desktop yes it essentially turns your whole desktop into a uh, almost live satellite composite view of the earth from space
0: with day and night lines so you can see the city lights and the night part and i, I use it for uh knowing if it's n- what time of the day it is at any point in the planet before i call there right but <laughs> my favorite thing about it because the clouds are right Is every so often there's a reentry and it leaves a 4,000 mile cloud line. They're very, they're straight streaks of cloud. Yeah. And, uh, and they persist for quite a while. So you'll every so often see a reentry line, typically into the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. Although occasionally into the Indian Ocean. And, uh, you can grin because you knew something big came back.
1: Tinyurl.com slash desktop earth. The only thing I don't like about desktop earth is that if you're using VNC or remote desktop and you want to turn it off temporarily while you're connecting to your computer remotely so it doesn't just absolutely clog up your connection with graphics that you don't need to see anyway, uh, you really got to uninstall it. You can't just temporarily turn it off. Right. And that's what I don't like about it. Oh, well. But, uh, oh, well. That's the price we pay for Geek. But I have it stretched across two 30-inch Dell monitors, and it's beautiful.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we live in a pretty planet. Well, I guess that's a show. So what do you want to do for the next one?
1: Dude, I don't know. I mean, there's so much news coming out in in, uh, private space travel, and NASA and International Space Station news. We definitely have
0: to at least keep one foot on that. Uh, But there's so many other things to talk about. We got a great email from one of the listeners saying he'd like us to talk about electric cars. Well, we should. I think we should do that one. All right. And if you've got suggestions for the show, send us an email, .net rocks at franklins.net. Let us know you like this one, and uh, let us know what you'd like us to do next.
1: Leave a comment on the website. Uh, that's where most people get in touch with us these days. Yep. Uh, if you want to subscribe to us on Twitter, my, uh, my Twitter name is Carl Franklin, one word. And on Facebook, uh, Carl Eric Franklin. Uh, so that's a good thing. Richard,
0: you have uh... I'm a tw- I'm Twittering at Rich Campbell. And I'm Richard Campbell on Facebook. And there you go. Until next time, we'll see you on .NET Rocks.
1: <laughs> .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by PWAP.